0: Thank you, Lord. Well, let's give that praise to Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. He's alive. He's alive. He's alive. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen. In Jesus name. Well, you can be seated in the presence of the Lord and in the company of God's saints. Thank you, Lord God, for all that you are. Well, tonight, could you take your Bible and let's make a confession of faith so that we could all walk in the same spirit of faith tonight and we're just going to begin our time. Say this after me. This is my Bible. Bible. Though there are many in the world, this one is mine. I can be what it says I could be. I can do what it says I could do. I can have what it says I could have. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. He that comes to God must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. Because I am a diligent seeker of God, my life will be better because I have heard the word of faith. Do you believe that? I believe that. Let's make our lives better by hearing the word of God. Let's start again in Mark chapter 16. We're going to read our foundation scriptures. Find Mark 16, verse number 15. And in that verse, it says in 16, 15, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. And he who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs shall follow those that believe in my name. They shall cast out demons. They shall speak with new tongues. They will take up serpents. And if they drink anything deadly, it will not hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. In this text, we looked at that word go into the world. And this word is different than the one in Matthew 28 19 that says go to the nations and make disciples. The word nations is the word ethnos. Every nation means every person of every race, of every nation in all the world. And we are called to go globally to every person of every race, of every nation, all the world, ethnos. But here he says, go into the cosmos. Go to every orderly arranged place that man arranges a system And Sunday morning. And through the week, we've looked at man arranges these seven systems to make up a culture and society, arts and entertainment, business, congregations, direct media. Uh, he, they also arrange educational systems and family as well as governmental systems. We are to invade those systems and preach the gospel through our lifestyle and also through our language. Now, we have said to go into these systems, we also must be willing to discern the times and seasons as we go. So we've used as a compatible scripture, Matthew chapter 16, and if you'll turn there from Mark 16 to Matthew 16, 1. And in Matthew 16:1 it says, then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, testing him and asked him that... He would show them a sign from heaven, and he answered and he said to them, "When it is evening, you say it is it is well, be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, um, it is foul weather today, uh, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, how can you discern the face uh, the face of the sky?" But you cannot discern the signs of the time. Here, Jesus was being asked to show a sign. They were asking him in a test. Prove he was Messiah. When you know who you are, you don't have to prove who you are. And Jesus just tells them in this sign. How is it that you can tell the weather and read the sky, but you do not know the signs of the time? That same uh, Dialogue takes place in Luke chapter 12 and verse 56. And if you'll review one more time in this text, where there is a leadership meeting, scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 16, but here again, a leadership meeting with my model for leadership, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says this in the middle of the dialogue in Luke chapter 12, He says, Hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky and of the earth. How is it that you do not? Discern this time. We have said that the word discernment that we've been working on, discerning the times, has been our theme, is to the sift in the sword and to find out what's in operation. And today, if there was ever a time we needed to discern voices, if we ever needed to discern motivations, If we ever needed to discern uh, environments and conditions, this is that time to sift and assort and find out what's really in operation. To discern also means to reveal what is acting behind the scene because there is God, there are angels, there's a devil, and there are demons. There's also humanity as well as a corrupt earth and a corrupt system and because all of these operate simultaneously in the earth we have to reveal what's really be, the uh what's really happening and what's really acting behind the scene the word discern also means to detect with senses other than the eyes and you and I many times God will give us a sense an impression sometime a dream or a, d- a vision to help us in our discernment Reading the word helps to sharpen your discernment for the work is quick and powerful, sharper than any two edged sword, says Hebrews 4.12. It says it pierces through the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and join and morrow. And it is the discerner of the thought and the intent of the heart. Reading the word will sharpen our discernment because before the word, everything is laid naked and bare with with whom we have to do. The sermon can be sharpened by reading. The sermon can be sharpened by reflection, taking a time and just pressing pause for a moment before we act and before we respond. And many of us react and we respond too quickly without pressing pause and taking a moment and stopping and reflecting on what we're going to do. See, to discern means to detect what senses other than the eyes and discern also means to recognize and to understand the difference between what's going on. Tonight, I'd like to give you our final uh, I, uh, areas of this sermon. And I have 10 of these. I announced 30 on Sunday. I think we've covered 20. And I knew that tough troops come out on, on, um, on, on Wednesday night. So uh, we're going to get this done. Now, I'm not, 10 points doesn't mean I'm going to preach two hours. Okay, this sermon's going to be like a mini skirt. It's going to be enough to cover the subject matter, but short enough to keep it interesting. Okay. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Okay. All right. Okay. Y'all ready? (laughs) Okay. Or like Henry VIII told his fifth wife, I won't keep you long. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Let's go. Okay. Stop playing. You're on my time now. One of the things that we need to discern during this season is we need to discern when to take, uh, when uh, to let a person go. And when to receive them. There are times when we are going into the world that we have to release people. And then there are times we need to discern. After they're released, when to receive them. Look in Luke chapter 15, 13. In Luke 15, as you're getting there, there's a a series of scripture that are talking about lostness. It talks about lost sheep. It talks about lost coins. And then it talks about lost sons. When it talks about the lost sons, one son is lost outside the house. One son is lost inside the house. It's possible to get lost inside the house of God. And in Luke chapter 15, verse 13, Luke 15, 13, it says, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together and he journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. If you stay in that same chapter, Luke chapter 15 and verse number 20, it says, and there arose and he arose and he came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion on him and ran to him and fell on his neck and kissed him. Discerning when to let somebody go and when to receive them is a dance. It's not so much scientific and literal as much as it is a season of discernment. This younger son comes to his father, says, give me my stuff that is supposed to come to me as an inheritance. Some translators and some commentators say he was actually knew that his father had to die for him to get his stuff, could he be saying to the father, I want you dead? I want my stuff now. Or maybe he was just young and foolish and wanted his stuff prematurely. He asked for his stuff. The father released his stuff and the father probably knew he was not mature enough to handle it. He let the son go. He probably watched that son go over the top of the hill and probably waited a long time for him to go. And then every day he probably glanced at it. He'll After a while, without the knowledge of the father, the son wastes all of his substance and prodigal living. One day he comes to himself and he says, you know what, in my father's house, there's bread enough in the spare. Because you see, when a man leaves, loses a vision for his future, he will always go back to his past. It's good that this man had the father's house in his past. Because when you lose a vision for your future, you always go back to your past. And this man says, I will get up and I will return home. I believe that this is a season where many times there have been some that we've had to release from our homes and release from the church and sometimes release from even our covenantal fellowship relationship. What do we do when they come back home? Will there be open hearts in the church? The father let the son come so far, but then he ran out and received him. And friends, there's a time when we have to release people. Sometimes there's a rebellious child in the house. Sometimes there's a child that's self-willed, a son or a daughter that's self-willed. and We have to release them. But what happens when repentance comes to their heart and they want to turn around and we know that they caused us great pain? It takes great discernment to know whether to leave them out there or whether to bring them back and say, let's try it again. His father, because he discerned the time, put a ring on his finger. He said, I'm returning your authority. He put new shoes on his feet and he says, You're gonna have a new walk with me. He put a new robe on his back and said, You're gonna have a new identity with me. He discerned the time to receive him back into his house. And though there had been damage and wasted resource, he discerned the time when to let him go. And when to receive him again, I'd like to suggest you that when you receive somebody back again, that's gone out, gotten broken in life and a corrupt world has beaten them up. You have somebody that comes back that will be loyal. And it takes God who knows the heart to help us to sift and sort and know what's going on. We need to discern when to let a person go and then when to receive them. I've had ministers who have felt like they were church planters in my heart. I took them to church planning uh, responsibilities, and at the end, we do an evaluation, and they say, I see it, I want it, I want to do this, and sometimes, I've had to be honest, I say, I don't see you as a senior pastor, but I always have to hold open the possibility. I know in part, and I prophesy in part, and so I've told me, and I said, you go out there and give it a shot, and I said, and if it doesn't work for you, come back here. Some have gone out, and they've done marvelously well, those I am proud of. There are some that have gone out and gave it the best shot they could, and it just didn't work. And you know what? When they came back to me and said, apostle, can I come back home? I said, I didn't throw you out. You just left to pursue what you believe was in your heart. One of those men is on my preaching team now. He's a marvelous preacher. He's a marvelous second. And I had to receive back and folks say, but he left. I thought he wouldn't. I said he did leave, but I told him when he left, if it didn't work, come on back home. I found out if you leave right, you could always come back home. And we need to know when to release somebody. And uh, let them go and then to receive them back. Second thing that we need to discern. Listen, this will help all of us who teach and preach in small groups. We need to discern the difference between transparency and vulnerability. Transparency and vulnerability. Now, to be vulnerable with someone is to let them see inside of you. But to be vulnerable with somebody is to share knowledge with them that could damage you. Let people see into you is transparency. Years ago, they started making pulpits instead of out of wood. They made them out of plexiglass so they'd be transparent so that you could see the preacher. Why they did that? I don't know. I just like them. They look good. But then to be vulnerable is when you and I are opening up with someone to share something that could damage us. You see, Jesus in Matthew 17, he goes up and he's getting ready. To show somebody who he really is. And in Matthew 17, 1, he says, After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and he took them up on the mountain by themselves. Matthew 17, 2 goes on to say, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Jesus now is being vulnerable because he is God in the flesh and they've only seen him as a son of man and as a son of God's Mary's baby, if you will. But now he says, man, I need to let y'all know who I really am. I am God. God is light and in him there is no darkness. And what God does is he lets some of that flesh peel back and Jesus shows them the deity that's inside of him. But he doesn't take everybody. Because you can be transparent with many. But you can be vulnerable with a few. You see, vulnerability is when you share something with someone that can damage you. And when I read the book of Mark in Mark chapter 8 and verse 26, watch this. 826 of Mark, if you turn there, it says, then he sent him away. And this is a man that is cured to his house saying, go neither into the town nor tell anyone in the town. Jesus would heal people. And tell them to go. And he says, and tell no one in the town. He says, and don't let anybody know where he, who, who did this to you. In Mark, 8, 30, in Mark 8 and 30, he says, and he strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. The disciples and those that Jesus ministered to. In the book of Mark, many times you might call the book of Mark the book of the secret Messiah. Because he would do fantastic stuff with people, and then he would say, shh, don't tell nobody. And then he would do something else with his disciples, and he said, shh, don't tell anybody. And he would give them a glimpse through transparency that I am the healer, Jehovah Rapha, to come to make you whole. But then he would say, don't tell anybody. Now, to me, I look at that and I say, because it was not Jesus's time, maybe he did that and some theologians would agree. Uh, Also, from a a marketing standpoint, it might have been a marketing ploy because, you know, there's no better way to get the word out than to do something incredible with somebody and then say, shh, don't tell nobody. So it might've been a marketing ploy, but could it be that Jesus was demonstrating to his disciples how to be transparent with some and vulnerable with others? Vulnerability is when you and I share things with people that could damage us. And that means that there must be a trust relationship. And one of the challenges with some people is that they share too much, too fast with untrustworthy people. I believe that you need to have a place of confessional where you could tell someone that's mature, that could handle your junk, your mess, your corruption, and will only take it to God. See, people that are your vulnerability partners are people that know all about you and still love you. Amen. Amen. They know all about you and still love you. I tell preachers cause I have a lot of young preachers in our city. And they come to me sometime and talk cause I've been pastoring our church for 34 years now. And they say, pastor scales. They say, you know, these young people, they want transparency. I said, some of them want transparency and some of them want nakedness. I said, now my mother was transparent with me, but I didn't want to see her naked now. And I told them, I said, listen, listen, Good preaching shows people a little bit of your underwear. Show people too much of your underwear, they'll need therapy. <laughs> and you and I need to discern trust relationships, who to be vulnerable with, and then who to be transparent with. Jesus took a sled group, Peter, James, and John, and he opened himself to them That takes discernment as you come into the last days. It will be important because some of us have done things that are illegal, that shared in the wrong settings. There's no statute of limitation on what you might share in a testimony meeting. And not everyone is for your good. Thirdly, we need to we need to discern who to take on a ministry trip and who to leave for another time. All right. This is number three. Who to take on a ministry strip, trip? Who to leave for another time? Look in Mark chapter five and verse number. Mark chapter five and verse number thirty-seven. This is a good one. Jesus goes and he's getting ready to work on those miracles in Mark, and it says in Mark five thirty-seven it says and he permitted no one to follow him except for Peter James and John, and it, then it says. And the brother of James, he permitted no one to follow him. And friends, you and I, we need to know who to take on a ministry trip and who to leave for another time. First of all, I would like to ask the question, what's the purpose of them going on a ministry trip? And then what are they going to be doing? There are some people I take on a ministry trip, like my wife, because I need companionship. I like her to go with me. If I know I'm going to be with another couple, then I want her to be able to interact with other pastors, wives and other church. I take her probably about 70% of the time when I go There's some sometimes I'll take a man if I'm taking products, sometimes they have CDs and DVDs and books, and I'll say, your responsibility on a ministry trip is to sell the product. There's other times when I take people on ministry trip for protection. I went to a church one time in Dayton and they threatened me after I preached. They didn't like what I preached, And they pulled me in a room and they they threatened me. I mean, they they kept me in there and they tried to debrief. I gave them the notes I preached, told them the research. And this one big dude stood in the door when I got ready to leave and he said, he said, the bishop is not finished with you. Sit down. I said, I'm from the inner city. You better move. (laughs) And brother stepped aside. And then after they reviewed my notes, they invited me back the next year. I told them I wasn't going to go. But I've learned to pray. I said, God, can you believe that? They asked me. He said, yeah, you're supposed to go. And you're going for the people. And so I took one of my security men, big dude, got out of prison, and he looked at me. Big Danny, man, I said, he, he said, Apostle, why are you taking me on this trip? I said, protection. <laughs> I said, while we're driving over, I'll tell you what happened. And I told him how the dude stood in the door and everything. he, he sat in that front seat. He got so mad. He said, they got some noise. He said, you ain't got to worry about nothing this year. I said, I, I believe you. <laughs> you got to know why you're taken. Jesus took Peter to that prayer meeting. Y'all remember that? Because he knew them people was going to come up on him. Who was it but Peter had the knife? A deacon taking a knife in a prayer meeting. I'm just saying, I'm just saying. You got to discern who to take on a ministry trip and who to leave for another time. Number four, y'all playing too much, come on. Number four, you and I need to discern what is inevitable and what can be changed and altered. There's sometimes we pray for things for God to change that are going to be inevitable. And number four is important because in Matthew chapter 18, verse 7, 18:7, it says, woe to the world because of offense, because offense, watch this one word, must come, but woe to the man by whom offense comes. Jesus said, woe to the world because of offense. And there are some things that are inevitable. I will come again, John 14, 1. And John 14, 3. And here he says, offense must come. Friends, you can pray to offense proof your church, your life, and everything else. Offense is going to come. How we respond to offense is within our charge. Offense must come. So there will be people that do or don't do, or say, or don't say things that are offensive. The psalmist says, great peace have those that love my law. In nothing shall they be offended. An offense is gonna come, and you and I need to set our heart. When it comes, am I gonna take up an offense and crush and get a bitter spirit, or am I gonna learn how to respond to offense and bear all things, believe all things, hope all things, endure all things, And stay in love and keep on growing. There are some things that are inevitable. And as we come into the last day, there will be seasons and incidents and events where we could get offended. Choose to walk in non-offense, even though it comes. And some things are inevitable. Number five, we need to discern what methodology to use. I happen to be a person that work with different kind of ministry teams, various places. I've had that honor and I've had the honor of watching people do a lot of things in the area of healing. And uh, sometimes I go to meetings just to observe, not to minister. And when I look at Jesus' healing ministry, look at this in, in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 34. There's a little incident of Jesus healing and curing someone. It says, so Jesus had compassion and he touched their eyes and immediately their eyes received their sight and they followed him. This time, Jesus healed through compassion and the touching of the eyes. But then in Mark chapter 8 and verse 23, Mark eight twenty-three, we find this word written. And he took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes, he put his hands on him and asked him uh, if he saw anything. So this time Jesus takes a man out of town and he actually spits in his eye. And then puts his hands on him and says, can he see anything? The man says, I see men like trees walking. Jesus then touches him a second time. A second touch and the man sees clearly Methodology. First time, just touch his eye. This time, spit in his eye, ask him a question, touch him again, he healed. John chapter nine, verse six. Same issue, eyes are blind. Matthew, John chapter nine, verse six. It says, and when he had said these things, he spat on the ground. This was a man born blind. He spat on the ground and made clay with saliva says New King James. And he anointed his eyes, not with oil, but with this mud that has been made by saliva of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is uh, translated "sent." And he went and washed and came back seen. Three different incidents of men being healed. One laying on of hands, one spit in his eye. Touch him. Ask a question. Touch him again. This time spit in the mud. Rub in his eyes. Tell him to go wash. He came back seeing. Friends, there's all kind of ways to get the job done. But I always have to ask God, what do you want me to do with this one? It may be different for different ones at different times. I remember one time listening to a, a tape by Kenneth Copeland and he said he saw a woman with a it looked like she had a, She was pregnant. She came up for prayer, and he said, what, what do you want for prayer? And she said, uh, this is not a baby. This is a tumor, and it's grown so big that I look like I'm pregnant. She said, I want God to heal me. He said he was getting ready to lay hands on her, and God said, ball up your fist and hit her in her stomach. Now, listen, you better be hearing from God, <laughs> even in a prayer line, before you ball up your fist someone in He bought it up, bam, hit her, in her stomach, stomach went, went down and got cured. You and I need to understand our message is the same, but our methodology may change even with some of the same conditions from time to time. And it takes discernment to know what needs to happen. I've gone in hospitals and just laid my hands on people and seen God move on their life. Gone in other times and anointed them with oil several times. And then they came out. I went in one hospital room and I was so overwhelmed by what I saw in terms of the treatment of that person. They were in such critical condition. The prognosis was not good and all God did was say worship. I just walked around the bed singing in the Holy Ghost. And when I got finished and I sensed that my assignment was done, didn't even pray, didn't touch them, walked out. Two days later, a lady was sitting up in the bed eating lunch. Same condition, but discerning, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do in this condition? And we need to discern our methodologies. Number six, we need to discern when to give people a second word for those of you who prophesy. Because sometimes God uses us to prophesy a word to somebody, and we need to know. Isaiah 38 is my case study here, and a case study is a man named Hezekiah, Isaiah 38.1, and then we'll look at Isaiah 38.4. It says, in those days, Hezekiah was sick near death. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, went to him and said unto him, Say thus saith the Lord, set your house in order, you shall die and not live. Now this is a real prophet of God and God tells him to go tell this man you're going to die and not live Isaiah goes and delivers the message And then he leaves and as he's gone Hezekiah turns his face to the wall and begins to pray He begins to argue with God and plead with God And all of a sudden in verse number four of Isaiah 38 4 It says And the word of the Lord came to Isaiah saying go and tell Hezekiah thus says the Lord thy God Of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears and surely I will add to your days 15 more years. Sometime there needs to be a second word from the Lord. I remember the first time I was ever in a prophetic gathering. And when I say prophetic, the adjective I'm talking about in this incident, a gathering of prophets that laid hands on me and began to minister to me. Three of them were there. One of the prophets laid hands on me and said the Lord is going to use you mightily and he's going to use you in a far reaching way and he is going to send you to your people to do a great work. I received that word but then the second word of the Lord came and it said and not only has the Lord said he will send you to your people but he's going to send you to his people. And that second word of the Lord broadened that word because my people might be African American people My mother's genetic roots are from West Coast Africa around Ghana and Senegal. My dad's genetic roots are from places like Ethiopia on East Coast Africa. I just don't want to go to my people because I've gone to Russia. I've I've gone to Asia. I've gone to the islands of the sea. I'm glad that a second word came that just didn't say to my people, but it said he sent to my people. Not just to your people, but to my people. And see, now I can say, these are our people, man. These are my brothers. These are my sisters. And sometimes there needs to be a word of the Lord. This one, you're going to die. A few minutes later, or maybe a few days later, comes back, man, you're going to have 15 more years. And friends, remember, we know in part, we prophesy in part. And sometimes God has an additional word. And for those of us who prophesy, especially in the area a personal prophecy, hear the word of the Lord. But don't be afraid to discern when God has an additional word that needs to be spoken. This is one that has helped to save my life. We need to, number seven, discern when to receive from God and when to receive from humanity. When to receive from God, number seven, and when to receive from humanity. My case study in this one is 1 Kings chapter 17 and verse number six. It says, and when the the ravens brought him, this is Elisha, bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. The condition and the context here, there's been a drought in the land. The water has dried up. There's been a drought in the land. The crops are dried up because no water. And yet this prophet is by a brook that supernaturally, even during the drought, when there's been no rain, it keeps running. And God uses the most unlikely bird. This bird is a scavenger, a raven to come and bring bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh at night. He is being sustained by God himself. Verse seven says, and it happened that after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the Lord came to him saying, arise, go to Zarephath. It says, which belongs to Sidon? And he says, and dwell there and see, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. This man has been provided for supernaturally directly by God for a season, but then it dries up. And then the next word of the Lord is that now your provision is going to come through the hand of humanity, discernment. Years ago when I was a lifeguard, when I was young, I worked at a Boy Scout camp and for some reason I contracted a rash that was on my shoulder. And when I was uh, in my early 20s, Uh, this rash started growing over my shoulder. It looked real nasty. And I went to a a dermatologist, asked him what it was. They said, oh, well, this rash is impacted by sunlight. And they said, so whenever you're in the sun, it's just going to grow. So probably in the summertime, you'll see it shrink. And then when you go out in the sun, if you have your shirt off, it's going to grow. And and he said, so you need to stay out of the sun. I said, man, my my, my, my summer job is a lifeguard. He said, well, you're just going to have to deal with it. And I remember getting a hold of Fred Price's Healing for All, uh, How Faith Works. I was listening to Dr. Price's tape, and he started talking about confessing your, the word over your, over your sicknesses. And he said, and it's good to try it with things that are non-threatening, non-life-threatening. And so I said, well, I want to see this rash move. So I used to make a faith confession every morning before I got in the shower and I would make it in my shower and come out of my shower. And every morning I would make my faith confession. I'd see the rash before I went in my shower, see it when I come out. One morning I went in, before I went in the shower, looked in the mirror, saw the rash, went in and made my faith confession, came out of the shower. And the thing was gone, gone, never saw it again directly from God. When I was making my transition from United Parcel Service several years later, after our church started, uh, into full-time ministry at Rayma Christian Center, I remember starting to experience these breathing conditions. It then began to affect my eyes. My, my, my eyes got real blurry. Went to an a, 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 a eye doctor. He told me it was uveitis. uveitis, and he said, but usually if you have this, there's something internal going on. Then all of a sudden, my breathing got so pronounced, my equilibrium was off. Went to a doctor of internal medicine, and they found out I had acute sarcoidosis. Acute sarcoidosis are these sarcoid growths that happen, causes lesions and growth inside the lungs, which cause your breathing to be very pronounced. I had some of it on my testicles, some of it in my legs. Usually, it's African-American women that get it. At that time, they did not call no causative effects because I asked the question, what causes? We don't know. They said, we don't even know how to heal it. They said, but we can put you on mega doses of prednisone. And they said, and it can bring it into remission to shrink these growths. I prayed and I asked God and I started making my confession. And God said, go to that doctor and do exactly what he tells you to do. I had received from God before, but this time the instruction of the Lord was do what this doctor tells you to do. You're going to receive from humanity this time. Well, some of the nurses asked me, well, what have they told you? I told them what I had. And I said, this is what they say. I'm making my faith confession, but I'm under doctor's care. They said, well, what did they give me? I told them prednisone. And man, they brought me all these articles about prednisone, about all this stuff. They said, man, you're going to have a big water head. You're going to pick up all, all, all this weight. You're going to have all this water retention. They said, that stuff is poison. People are telling me all kinds of stuff. But God said, do what the man said, do. I did exactly what I did. I was on these mega doses. Uh, For for that amount of time and I prayed to God said God should I be taking this he said what I tell you to do I told you to do what I told that what the man said to do And then God told me this if you can't rebuke a side effect from a medication How are you gonna bind and rebuke a disease? So every morning when I took that medication, I rebuked the side effect, commanded the medicine to do exactly what it's supposed to do in my body. I was on that for three years. When I came out, the stuff went into remission. He said he never knew it to flare out again. That was in 1990, uh, and uh, and it has not come back since. Have not seen any sign of it because you and I have to discern when I need to receive directly from God, and when I would need to receive from humanity. And who knows that God might have led you to the doctor that you're going to so that you can receive from the widow woman this time. You say, but God in days past, I've received from your hand. And God knows that that's where you're going to be sustained. And friends, you and I have to discern and sift and sort what we need to do. And I've seen people that had the same disease that are no longer in the earth because they wanted to do it another way And some of them have said, you know what? I know I should have done something else. It's it's tough to die with regrets. I'm not telling you to do one thing or another. I'm telling you to discern, sift and sort and reveal and find out what it is God's telling you to do. Learn when to receive from God and when to receive from humanity. Number eight, you and I need to discern who are the priests and who are the kings in this church? Who are the priests? And who are the kings? Let me give you uh, uh, a couple of scriptures here. Uh, there's a guy that Abraham meets whose name is Melchizedek. In Genesis chapter 14, verse number 18. And 14, 18, it says about Melchizedek, it said, Melchizedek, it says, was the king of Salem, and he brought out bread and wine, and he was also the priest of the Most High God. This first priest that we meet in the Old Testament is a king-priest ministry. He is the king of Salem, and he is also... The priest of the most high God. You know what? During the time as we go into the law, the kingly ministry and the priestly ministry, other than under the economy and under the uh, time of David, really gets separated. David is a king, but he does a lot of priestly things. And then 1 Peter 2, 9 comes along for our new covenant, the second covenant. And it says this, 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, but you are all a chosen generation. Watch this. You are a royal. That's kingly priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are his own special people, says new King James, that you may proclaim the praises of God who has called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. You are a royal priesthood, the Melchizedek order, kings and priests. Now in the revelation, when we get there, he talks in terms of the fact that God has made us kings and priests unto Himself. And we need to discern first, first uh, in, in the Revelation 1 and verse number six, when they're around the throne, one of the things that they say in one six is He has made us kings and priests to our God and the Father, to Him be glory, dominion, Forever and ever, amen. When heavenly worship is seen in a, in a far-reaching way, the nation's coming to worship him around the throne. In the Revelation 5.10, the Revelation 5.10 now, he says, and he has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. There's a lot of people in the church that are kings that try to become priests. A priest is one who is a worship leader And righteous before God. A king is one that conquers territories in God's name to advance the kingdom. A king conquers territories in God's name to advance the kingdom. Kings give joy to the people because they bring resource to the people. Priests are people that take those resources and make sure it's used to worship and to remember the most high God who is the possessor of all things. Because when Melchizedek blesses Abraham, he says that I'm a priest of the most high God and Abraham says, yeah, and blessed be Melchizedek uh, of the most high God, the possessor of heaven and of earth. And friends, many times we make a mistake because we're trying to squeeze people in the Bible college and squeeze people in the seminaries and they're really called to be kings, not priests. Can't put everybody up in the pulpit, but they know God wants to use them. And what would it be like if God wanted to use you in the marketplace? The way that uh, there was a man that one time wanted to be a great missionary, but somehow his health was failing. And because he could not, Go to be a missionary he said Well I'll help mission efforts and so At that time he determined he wanted to Make a juice that was Non-alcoholic that could be served At the communion table and from the Proceeds he would start Supporting missionaries That last name of that Man was Welch And Mr. Welch made a great Juice that could be served at The communion table that Was non-alcoholic and, the, and as it grew into a corporation, significant funds from that corporation went to support missionaries. And from that, we got our Welch's grape juice today because here was a man that said, I'm trying to be a priest, but maybe God has called me to be a king. You see, kings think differently. They know that their responsibility is bringing resource to fund the vision of God. Melchizedek was out in the community and he finds Abraham who's doing community work. And he gives him bread and wine. He feeds him and he nurtures him so he could go back out there and take more territory. And there are some that are kings and some that are priests. Joel Stein, in his book in 2003, wrote uh, an article, no, wrote uh, uh, an example of Arnold Palmer. Arnold Palmer, the great golfer, was invited to Saudi Arabia to go and play Uh, Golf with the king of Saudi Arabia, and also he was invited there to help give him some tips on his golf game. Arnold Parver went, played golf with him for several days. The king of Saudi Arabia sent his own private plane to pick up Arnold, flew him over, put him up in a luscious room, and then played golf with him. When Arnold was getting ready to leave, the king says, You come. I've so enjoyed our time. Thank you for coaching me. He said, what can I do for you? And Arnold said, man, you gave me first-class service. It's been extraordinary. You don't need to do anything for me. And he said, the king would not resist. So finally, Arnold Palmer said, well, you know, I collect golf clubs. Why don't you give me a golf club? And the king said, I'll do that. And you know what? Arnold said he was just thinking about maybe he's going to send me a solid gold golf club. Maybe he's going to see me at a golf club uh, with, uh, with 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 uh, with diamonds in it, and he said. And he waited for year for weeks for the package came, and the package never come. He said after a while he kind of forgot about it. One day a knock came at the door, and a courier has an envelope. Arnold signs for it. It's from Saudi Arabia. He opens it up, and it's the deed to a five hundred acre golf course. Kings think different. Oh, just buy me a golf club. Kings think different. And there are some people we're trying to squeeze into being priest. And could it be the God that God had called them to be the kings in this church? to help fund the missions and the youth ministry. And the next thing that God has called us to do, we need to discern since he's called us to be a royal priesthood. And both were anointed by God. Since he's called us to be a royal priesthood. Who are the kings and priests? Because when we get into the revelation, he's gonna say, because he's called us to be, I'm not gonna use the word kings this time, businessmen and preachers and worshipers before our God. Don't minimize the kings in the church. I anoint my kings every year. Bring all the business people up. Get me some oil. I'll get me a big bowl of oil because I want them real greasy when they go out of there. Oh yeah, I need you kings. I need God to make this the best year of your life. I need you to maintain a heart towards God that you understand that everything that comes to you is not for you. And out of your heart, you can help push ahead and forcefully advance the kingdom of God. We need to discern the difference between kings and priests. Let's go number nine. Y'all doing good tonight. Are y'all still with me? GP, are you with me? Okay, come on. Number nine. All right. Number nine. We need to discern the shifts in worship when God speaks the shifts in worship There are three dimensions of worship I've seen our church shift through, And all of them took discernment To know when God was shifting our worship Psalm 150 verse 3 Was the first level of worship That we understood in our church Psalm 150 verse 3 through 5 It says praise God With the sound of the trumpet That's when we start bringing in the instruments And I saw that here Praise God with the lute and with the heart Praise him with the timbre and with the dance. That's demonstrative praise and demonstrative praise. Praise him with stringed instruments and the flute. Praise him with the loud sounding cymbal and praise him with the high sounding cymbal, the clashing cymbal. There's a time when our praise and worship is our music, our song expression. When we come into the church, we would call that worship. And I believe in that kind of worship. I believe that it's all the way through the Psalms. I believe that it goes through the revelation. I believe that we ought to praise God with our voice. And if you have breath, you're a praiser. Let everything that if you could, everybody inhale, exhale. If you can do that, you can praise the Lord. The only thing that doesn't praise the Lord is Bible say the dead praise, not the Lord. So if you're ever in church and somebody uh, is not praising the Lord, you know what happened. They just died. They don't know it. Okay. (laughs) Only the dead praise, not the Lord. So there's a time when our praise is music and demonstrative, but then God will shift our worship to us becoming the sacrifice. Romans chapter 12, verse number one. And in Romans 12, one, it says, I beseech you therefore, brother, new King James, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. New Living Translation says of that particular verse, Romans 12, 1, he says, so dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because all he has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. New Living Translation says, this is truly the way to worship Him English Standard Version says that I appeal before you therefore brethren by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable unto God which is your spiritual worship English Standard Version listen all of those say that our spiritual worship may shift from just singing to living. Sacrificial living is a worship to God every day and many times. I look at sometimes I've seen people behind the stage and behind the scenes in some musical genres that are Christian artists and in the Christian music industry. Some of them struggle with alcoholism, some of them struggle with drugs, some of them struggle with sexual identity. And I say, God, how can I get on the stage and sing about you and yet not have this together? He said, They're first-dimensional worshipers. They know how to sing but they never have come to the second dimension where they become the worship. And second dimensional worship is when I become the worship. My body being presented as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is my reasonable service so that I don't sing like an angel out here and then act like a demon when I go outside the door of the hall or of the church. And there are shifts in worship that we need to understand. The third dimension of worship is when God wants to take the worship into the community. And in Amos chapter 5 and verse 23, 523 of Amos, listen, Amos is out there dealing in a community, a community is getting ready to go into captivity, and here's what happens. He says, now listen, take away from you, from me, says God, the noise of your song. Stop the music. Let me not hear the melody of your strings. Stop the instruments. But then in Amos 524, he says, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream you see justice is worship in the community when you and I go out in the community and fix things when we are right things that are wrong when we speak the injustice to the poor, the oppressed, the widows and the orphans to those that cannot have a voice for themselves there's a group that's called Black Lives Matter and some people say well they're just making all kind of noise I said if the church had a prophetic voice Then the people would not have to go off misdirected. Because, see, what a prophetic voice is a voice of justice. When I go out and prophesy and fix things and lift up the community, well, I see community problems. And you know what? In Amos, he says, "Take all of that stuff away." He does the same thing in Micah. He says, "Man, stop all the oil, stop all the sacrifice, stop all of this that you're doing before me, because I have shown you, old oh man." Micah six 8, What is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? Jesus said it like this in Matthew twenty three twenty three. He says, "Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees!" These were the worship leaders. He says, you hypocrites. Listen, worship, part of worship is giving. He says, you tie the mint, the anise, the cumin, and also, uh, he said, the mint, the anise, the cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done not to leave the other undone. I remember a few, about five years ago, God shifted our church and said, you're worshiping inside with the instruments, you're worshiping with your life, but you cannot have a successful church and a failing community. He said, I want you to be like Ezekiel's temple. Let the water that's in this sanctuary flow over the threshold and go out into the community. Can y'all see that picture? Because we have the water flowing in here. But what would it be like if the water flows over the threshold and we go down where poor people are we go down where homeless people are we go down where people that don't have any clothes are and we not only give them clothes and food and shelter but then we also ask the question why does this exist in our community and we speak truth to power and get things adjusted. And God will shift. Don't ever detach mercy and justice ministry in the street from your worship. Because in the book of Amos and Micah and even Jesus, he said, these are the weightier matters of the law, the stuff people never get to. It's not about social programs. Social is never mentioned in there. God calls it justice, setting things aright right in a corrupt system. We need to discern when God shifts us my final impression for discernment for this church neither we need to discern the shifts of worship but we need to discern we need to discern the time or the hour or the time or the hour of our visitation I believe that this church is marked for God to come in new dimensions Now, when I say God to come don't think that I'm ignorant I know his omnipresence but there's also his conspicuous presence. His conspicuous presence is when even unbelievers walk in and they say, God's in this place. I've had people that don't even believe come in and say, It's different in here. They don't even know the language you speak. I've had people that know God or have known him and come in and they say, God is in this place. I've had ladies come up. In our break between praise and worship and my preaching to say, I don't want to wait to the end of the service. I can't stop crying. I've had men come up and say, I need to get my life right now. Because the conspicuous presence of God is in there. Luke chapter 19, as I close tonight, Luke chapter 19, would you turn there with me and find verse 41 uh, through uh, verse 44. Luke 19, 41 through 44. I'm reading now. It says now he drew near and he saw the city. And listen to this. He wept over it. This scripture was read, I believe, Sunday in our scriptural reading in our transition by the pastor on Sunday. And it says, and, uh, and he wept over it. He had read the previous verses about that triumphant entry where he's saying, Hosanna to God in the highest, and, and they're praising the name of the Lord. And then he says, why is he weeping? He said, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the day will come upon you when your enemy will build an embarkment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You know, this word of visitation is the word episcope, from which we also have the root word, from which we get the word episkopos or bishop, overseer. An overseer is one that comes to investigate and to inspect. And the word is translated in English, in some translation, visitation. There are times when God comes to a people to inspect and to investigate. And this is an act when God comes and he looks inside of us and searches our ways as a church. He searches our deeds as a church. He searches our character as a church. And he wants to give judgment. He wants to adjudicate us and that can either be joyful adjudication or sad adjudication. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. The children were praising him. The poor folks were praising him. While the Roman army was showing ashore forth, coming in one side of the the city, Jesus riding on a donkey, an unbroken court with humility, with the people coming in on another side. People are saying, stop them. Do you hear what they say? And he said, oh, man, if only you had known and discerned this day, he said, because you missed your hour. In 70 A.D., 30 A.D. comes into the city, 33 A.D. comes in the city, 70 A.D. The Romans do exactly what Jesus prophesied. They surround the city, they embark around the city. When they embark around the city, they lay siege to the city. The enemies then take the city. The only part of the city that's left is what we call the western wall now. The bricks, are, the temple are torn down, the temple is desecrated. And you see, when we miss our hour of visitation, not discerning the times, many times we are sunk in the spiritual blindness because this uh, this, uh, writing says in verse number 42, it says, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Pastor John and I were talking about some studies we do with various groups. And it's amazing that when we study with various groups, they can read the very Old Testament that we read. And we're seeing Jesus everywhere and they see nothing. You missed your hour and now there's a veil over your eyes. He said the other result of not discerning our time and our hour visitation is that the enemy has authority to us and can do whatever he wants to. When you and I miss the hour of God, the day when you hear his voice, saints of God, as I close, don't harden your heart because you give enemy the access to your life to begin to dismantle your life brick by brick, stone by stone. Everything you have built up in your life, if you miss his voice, It'll be dismantled. When we miss his voice finally and thirdly, and Pastor Ray, you can come, we miss our prophetic hour. But when adults miss their prophetic hour, the next generation pays for it. You see, in verse 44, he said, everything will be leveled and your children within you to the ground. He said, everything's going to be leveled. I'm sure when they went into captivity in 70 AD, one generation later, later, I'm sure when the kids were walking out of that city and running from that city and being carried into Europe and and into captivity, they probably said, but but mom, you told us we were covenant people. And the parents had to say, yeah, but we missed our day of visitation. When God came to inspect us and to investigate us, and when God came to see about us and to see our ways, our deeds, we rejected him. And now we're in this mess. My prayer for America now, with all the prayer that's going forth for our nation, with all the prophecy that's going forth through our nation, my prayer is not for America, but for the church in America, because I still believe 2 Chronicles 7.14 is true. Hear me, church, as I close. Let's not miss our hour of visitation. I still believe if my people, I know it's Old Testament, saints, but I still believe if my people, not those on the outside, if my people, not those that are wicked, but if my people, not the Democrats, but if my people, not the Republicans, but if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. I still believe in a God that will heal from heaven, will forgive the sin, and will heal the land. Church, don't let us miss our hour of visitation. When your pastor calls you to prayer, don't neglect those times. When we fit sense in our public services a pray for our city and for our state and for our nation, let's not just offer up these little weak prayers. Let's be fervent in spirit and fervent in prayer because the effective fervent prayer of the righteous avails much and i can't pray without first getting down there and saying god search me and try me oh god and see if there be any wicked thing in me i don't have a sin consciousness but i want to remove anything that might be a block to spiritual progress are you hear me tonight let's not miss this hour i pray that for the rest of this week from this wednesday thursday friday and saturday as you approach resurrection weekend that you'll be on your face crying out for those that you put on your list i pray that you'll make some phone calls and say let me come pick you up and let me bring you to resurrection weekend come 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 worship with me because i believe if we'll cry out to the lord who might know but you might build a bridge from heaven's throne to that person's heart to bring them in here and who knows that they will hear the voice of the lord in the worship the verse of the lord in the special the voice of the lord in the preaching the voice of the lord at the altar call and the blindness will be lifted up and they'll be changed. I want to pray for us that will not miss our an hour. And I've discerned that God has called the church over the last five years to pray. Some people have complained about the president, complained about their governors, complained about their senators and their legislature. It's time to stop complaining. It's time to start praying. Yeah. You put off a spirit of complaining by a spirit of prayer. And I want to pray that this church will be one of those in this region that will be a strong tower of prayer. Because I still believe the word. I still believe the word. If my people. Let's pray. Oh God, your word says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will heal from heaven, forgive the sin and heal the land. And oh God, don't let us miss our hour of visitation, you've sent prophets from both in this country and outside this country who has provoked us and told us it's time to pray. God, when you come and investigate us and inspect us, when you come to look at our ways, our deeds, and our character, let us be found in you. When you come to adjudicate us, let us be with joy, not with sadness. Father, because our response to your presence today, Father, brings spiritual blindness off of our eyes. But if we miss it, we're going to spiritual blindness. Father, are missing your visitation. We'll give the enemy access to our lives. Oh God, he'll dismantle everything. Oh God, don't let it happen because if your people who are called by your name shall humble themselves and pray, seek your face, turn from their wicked ways, you'll hear from heaven, forgive the sin, and heal the land. And finally, Father, I pray that these are prophetic times. Oh God, I look to this next generation. And Father, if no other reason, I pray because of my sons, because of my daughter because of my grandchildren, because of all the children in a broader sense that are in our community. We don't want them to go into captivity. So God, we know if we do what we do on our watch, you'll be faithful to your word. Oh God, let us hear your call. Before you say go, you say come unto me. And don't let us just be people of prayer, but no action. Let us come and then let us go. And fathers, we discern the times. We thank you for it now. We believe you for it. And we thank you for it now in Jesus' name.